You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're concluding our study of the lives of faithful Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, years ago, uh, when I was in college, I used to go on this trip with some friends where we would drive up to Colorado. We would go up to a Young Life camp up there where they would give us free food and then they'd give us some jobs to do around the camp to help set it up before all the high school students and their leaders got there. We felt like it was a pretty fair deal because we got to spend a week up there in paradise. And and so we, we loved going up there. And I remember the very first time that I went on the first day, they introduced me to a guy named Nate. Now, I, I feel it necessary to, to tell you a little bit of backstory about Nate. Nate was a guy who, uh, he was, he was going to take us the next morning. There's a smaller group of us that were going to go down into the valley to build a, a fence for the horse pasture down there. And uh, I don't think they looked at my resume because I don't have fence building on there. But they sent us down there anyways. And so we ride the back of this flatbed truck down into the valley. And the next morning, it, it's a blizzard, just snow everywhere. We can't see 30 feet out in front of us, snow everywhere. And, and uh, so we're riding on the back of this, this flatbed, and we're throwing out these fence posts every 10 or 15 feet or so. And, and then we run this barbed wire spool out along the, the, the way so that we're going to go back and set it up. Well, at one point, the uh, and you can imagine, like, like doing all this was the most masculine I've ever felt in my life. Like, I just felt really, like, cool. Uh, that is until uh, the spool stopped working, and then all us city boys are just kind of staring at it, like, well, what do we do now? And out pops Nate from the truck. Nate gets out of the truck, comes around, and uh, he starts yanking at this barbed wire spool, and he can't get it to work. And you can see he's visibly frustrated uh, with his leather gloves getting caught in the barb. So he, he grabs them with his mouth and rips his gloves off and just goes at it barehanded. And we're like, whoa, dude, s- slow down. And, and I even, I kind of like tapped him on the shoulders like, Nate, that doesn't seem like a good idea, man. That's going to hurt your hands. And, and Nate goes, you know what? I got frostbite a long time ago. I don't feel much in my hands. And I was like, cool, okay, yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah, you do you, man. And, uh, and so we go back to camp and we're, we're talking about this story with some of the other leaders there at camp. And they're like, oh yeah, that's Nate, man. It turns out there's this whole mythos behind Nate. There's all these legends about him. They, they tell us another one. They say, yeah, Nate's got a pet wolf. And we're like, of course he's got a pet wolf. Why wouldn't he have a pet wolf? And, uh, and, and they said, yeah, one time Nate took his pet wolf out on a walk around his property. They're going through the woods and, and they come up on these mule deer. And, uh, and the wolf and the deer have never really seen each other out in the wild, right? And so they kind of have this awkward, silent moment. And the, and the wolf looks up at Nate and then they have this nonverbal exchange, I think, that probably went something like this. The wolf looked at Nate and went, so I got some instincts that are starting to kick in right now. Um, I'm going to take off. And just ran after all these mule deer. And Nate's like, well, I'm not going to keep up with the deer. I mean, with the, the wolf and the deer. So, so he just goes back home. And he's like, I hope my wolf comes home. Well, sure enough, the wolf came back home the next day all covered in blood. And he's like, oh, i got to go clean up whatever mess this thing made. So I'm going to go see if I can find this deer. And it uh, turns out there were several of them that the wolf had just gone after. And like, so he's got this like, killer wolf. I'm like, Man, that's, so, so that's Nate. And, uh, and later in the week, uh, oh, by the way, Nate's last name is the kicker, Flowers. So... Um, <laughs> Seriously, I, um, and so, so Nate, uh, later in the week, we would get this, this uh, story from Nate about how he ended up getting that frostbite in his hands. So it turned out that there had been a, another blizzard long before this, that Nate was going up to the horse stables there at the camp to, to take care of all the horses. He wanted to put them away and get them out of the snow, and so he thought he could beat the storm. He thought he could get, get it done before the blizzard came in, but he couldn't. The blizzard moved in, and, and while he was still getting the horses put away and the barn closed up, he got stuck up there, and, and he came outside to his truck, and 
The snow had just covered the ground. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't see the road that he came in on. And he goes, I know I got to get off this mountain because I don't have any food and my truck's going to run out of gas. And we're like, what'd you do, Nate? And he's like, well, I just went where I knew the road was supposed to be and I just drove off the mountain. We're like, what? You just, you just drove off the mountain? He's like, yeah. I was like, did you survive? I'm right here, right? Like, oh, yeah. Just, yeah, never mind. So, uh, so, so anyways, Nate, Nate just drives off this mountain where he cannot see the road in front of him. And, and this story came to my mind because as we continue and actually conclude this series that we've been in by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there now, you can. Uh, as we conclude this series, we, we've been looking at all these Old Testament heroes of the faith, all of these people who, when we look at their lives, we see these pivotal moments when they looked around and they, they couldn't make sense of what was in front of them. That, that for them, if they were to live by sight, if they were to simply look at the circumstances, they wouldn't see a way out. They wouldn't see uh, how they could get through it. And yet, in those pivotal moments, these people chose not to live by sight, but by faith. That when there was a, a, a snowstorm and, and they couldn't see the road in front of them, they knew to just drive, to just keep going. And so we're going to look today at, at the final uh, character from our, our, our study in this, this faith hall of fame, these heroes of the faith. And so if you will, look with me now at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, where it reads, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I think one of the most well-known characters in the entire Old Testament is David. And, and David uh, had some, some moments that where, where he faced remarkable circumstances. Sometimes he faced very trying, difficult circumstances, oftentimes because of his own doing. And we're going to see in a few different places in David's life where he could have chosen to, to walk by sight, to, to just simply trust what he could see and what he knew in his own judgment. But instead, David chose to walk by faith. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you'll turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to, we're going to look at, at several different stories, beginning with what I think, if David is the most well-known figure in the Old Testament. This is probably the most well-known moment in David's life. Because at this point in David's life, he's still a, a young shepherd tending the, the sheep in the fields. And at, the, at this time, the Israelite army is off fighting a war against the Philistines. And there is this one particular Philistine soldier named Goliath. And Goliath has stepped to the front lines and come out to challenge the Israelite army. In fact, saying, hey, if anybody wants to fight me one-on-one, -on -one, we can just do this whole battle right here, right now. Let's do that. But we're told that Goliath is this terrifying giant and he knows that he's super intimidating and the Israelite soldiers, they don't want any part of that. They're afraid of what they see in front of them. And David comes in from the fields at one point and he hears about this and we see part of his response here in, in verse 26. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
We skip ahead a few verses to verse 32 where David is talking to King Saul, where he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. That is Goliath. Your servant, I, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go to this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So I think all of us, at some point in our lives, we catch ourselves daydreaming about different things. Maybe you've had this daydream where you're thinking about, man, what would it be, what would be the best thing for me to accomplish that everybody would then know me for and it would just, it would just be the best reputation you could possibly have, like the coolest thing you could be known for? I mean, you think about, I walk into a crowded room of people and everybody sees me walk in and they start whispering like, oh, that's, that's the person who, fill in the blank, right? So for me, I'm just gonna, like I'm gonna, I'm going to open up to you and, and let you know what mine, mine was. So for, for as long as I can remember, the thing that I always thought would be awesome to be known for is killing a mountain lion with my bare hands. I, like, I, is that not the coolest thing you could be known for? I mean, just think of the scenario. Like, I go up to a vacation in Colorado, and I go to this little mountain town, and it turns out they've been terrorized by this mountain lion for, like, a long time. They're like, oh, yeah, I got three more goats from so-and-so up the street recently. And they, they're like, we won't go out at night because this mountain lion's out there. And, and I'm like, mountain lion, you say? And then we see him off in the distance, and I'm like, there he is. And I go after him into the woods, and they're like, who is this crazy Texas man that's going off into the woods after the mountain lion? And, and I disappear for hours, and then everybody's like, oh my gosh, you, the, the lion must have gotten him, poor guy. And then all of a sudden I emerge from the woods and I've got this, this beast on my shoulders and my clothes are just clawed to shreds and I come out, I'm not too bloody because I don't like pain, but I come out and I'm like, I'm like just, just limping down and I, I throw him on the ground. I'm like, oh, you're safe now. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're safe. So like, I mean, is that not like the coolest thing that you could be known for? I mean, that's always what I imagine. I was like, that, that'd just be awesome if I could be the guy who killed a mountain lion with my bare hands. And then I look at David here, and I'm like, all right, David. So if we were ever at a party together, and I was like, I'm going to drop my story right now. I'm going to do it. Okay, uh, yeah, so one time I killed a mountain lion with my bare hands. And David would be like, just one? You just got one? You, what about bears? You got any bears? I'd be like, no, I don't, I don't have any bears, David. I just have the one. Okay. And, and so David is the guy then who has killed lions and bears with his hands. That's who David is. So David really has the coolest stories and, and the best reputation. I'm so jealous of David that he's got that reputation. But then we see how David actually talks about that experience. Because David, David doesn't really see it as, as something that he himself has accomplished so much as he, he recognizes the Lord's hand in that. Verse 37, David says, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And so then David comes into these circumstances that other people look at and they're like, I got no chance here. I would stand no chance fighting that giant. And David sees that and he goes, I've been here before. And God took care of me when I was in that situation before. And so I think we ask the question, what would it look like in this moment to live by sight 
What would it look like to live by sight in a moment when you stand before a giant who's challenging you to hand-to-hand combat? Well, we see that modeled in the, the response of the Israelite soldiers. They model what it looks like to live by sight in that moment because all they can do is look with their eyes at this huge giant and they go, there's no way. Like, he would take me out in a heartbeat. I'm not going to go fight that guy. They're just judging as best they can see with their eyes right then in that moment, and they're afraid. They're not going to do it. And then we go, what would it look like to then live by faith in that moment? And we get David's model. We see how David responded. Sure, David saw Goliath in front of him. David knew how intimidating he was. But David's faced Goliath before. He's been in situations that were dangerous. He's faced threats. But David remembers what God did for him in those moments. And and so we recognize, hey, we can trust in God because we can remember what he's done in our lives. He wants us to do that. God wants us to remember what he's done. He's been calling his people to do that for a long time. If we go back to Joshua chapter 4, this is a point in Israel's history where where they've been led out of slavery in Egypt. And, and, And God used Moses to lead them out through the parted Red Sea. They had this miraculous rescue and they went out into the wilderness And the next phase of that that journey would be that God was going to deliver them into the promised land. And before he did that, he then parted the river Jordan and let them walk through the dry riverbed to recreate the moment that he'd already given them, the the parted Red Sea. He wanted to remind them of what he's done, that he, he continues to deliver them. And then he gets them through to the other side and into the promised land. And he tells them, I want you to turn around and look back. And I want you to build a monument of 12 stones right there. And that monument, that's going to be how you remember this. Because I want you and all your future generations to remember what I've done for you. Because there are dark days ahead. There are more struggles that you are going to encounter. More storms are coming. And when you get to them, I don't want you to look at the storm and think we'll never get through this. I want you to look back at what I've done for you already and remember my faithfulness. And so what we see here in this moment in David's life is that David trusted God because of what he'd already done. David knew God's going to take care of me because he's done it before, and he'll do it again. If we fast forward a few chapters, and we go to 1 Samuel chapter 24, we get to another point in David's life, this time where uh, he, has, he has now successfully defeated Goliath. Sorry, spoiler alert. And, and he's gone on to have more success in battle, and, and he's gaining a lot of popularity. He's becoming sort of this folk hero in, in Israel. And, and, and now Saul, the king, is feeling threatened by David's success and his popularity. And so Saul's like, I got to kill David. I got I to get rid of him. He's a problem for me, and I got to take him out. And, and so naturally, David realizes that his life is in danger, so he runs. And David's running away from Saul, trying to escape uh, Saul, trying to kill him. And and he hides out in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves, and, and he's got some, some faithful men with him, but he knows that at any moment, Saul and his armies could come and, and take his life. And so David now is in a point of desperation. He's, he's out hiding in these caves, and in 1 Samuel 24, verse 3, we read that he, this being Saul, came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself, as one does. So David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men said to to him, Here's your day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to, to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against you, for you are the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So we see this moment, this really awkward moment where David's hiding in the cave and Saul comes in and, and just exposes himself. Like, it's like getting, putting himself on a silver platter for David. And, and David's like, I have this opportunity in front of me. In fact, his, his men tell him, they're like, this is your chance, David. This is your chance. And, and I think when we, when we think about it in terms of what would it look like to, to live by sight versus living by faith in this moment? Well, what would it look like to live by sight, I think is presented again in the response of David's men. We see what they tell him, and, and, and it's sort of interesting to me that when we see this scenario, it really, to me, it plays out like temptation often does, that, that it starts with some truth. It starts with the, the truth that his men tell him. They say, hey, here's the day when the Lord said to you that he would give your enemy into your hand. He said that, David. He said he's gonna give your enemy into your hand. And so there's truth involved that they say, hey, you're gonna have a chance. But then they say, and you shall do what seems good to you. That, that you will look at the situation and using your judgment, live by sight, look at the situation and do what you think is right. Take matters into your own hands, David. This is your chance. And they present him with the temptation to, to walk by sight. But then we see how walking by faith is, is played out here. We see that in David's model. David instead chose faith. He chose to trust something. He knew that God had told him, hey, David, you're gonna sit on the throne one day. And he knew that and he trusted, okay, God, you're gonna get me there. And I'm not gonna take any shortcuts. And, and right now I've got the opportunity to take Saul off the throne. But I recognize that you anointed Saul too that you put Saul on the throne and it's not my job to take him off. And so you are going to put me on the throne one way or another and I'm gonna trust that because that's your plan and I'm gonna trust your timing as well. I'm not gonna take matters into my own hands. I'm not gonna live by sight in this moment. Instead, I'm gonna live by faith. And so what we see here is that David trusted in the Lord's plan and his timing and not his own. As we move on to the, the last passage that we'll read of, from David's life, it's not from narrative. In fact, it's from Psalm chapter 51. And it's, it's interesting that as we studied all of these Old Testament characters, 
we get these stories and, and these accounts told about them. We, we really don't get to see into their heart and their mind. We don't get to see their words. And yet here we're gonna get to see David's words recorded in this psalm. It's like, it's like a look into David's journal, right? That we get to see David's actual thoughts here play out. So if, if Samson and, and fighting, I mean, excuse me, if Saul, got my, all my names are all mixed up, hold on. If Goliath, there we go, I'd get it eventually. If Goliath was the most well-known story in David's life, then, then this moment in his life is perhaps, perhaps the most infamous point in his life. Because there was a time when David was supposed to be at war. He was sitting on the throne at this point. He was a king, and he was supposed to be at war as kings do. There was a season when he should have been away from his palace. Instead, he chose to stay behind. We're not really told why, but maybe laziness is implied. And, and, and so David chooses to stay home when he should have been away. And at this point, he sees a woman from his palace. He sees a woman and decides that she's good in his eyes. And he sins for her. And he has her brought into the palace. And he commits the sin of adultery. And, and so David, now an adulterer, tries to cover his tracks and he doubles down in his sin. And he has her husband killed. So now he's a murderer too. And so David finds himself in what I believe would be this really dark pit of his own sin. And it's in the, in the depths of this dark pit where David wrote Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We skip ahead to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Before we dive into to David's words here, I do want to offer what I think maybe is a helpful disclaimer because we see some words here that, that might confuse us where he says, cast me not away. And I think it'd be easy for us to read David say, hey, Lord, cast me not, don't, don't send me away. And we think, was he worried that God was going to, cut off this relationship with him? That he was gonna say, David, I'm done with you. You're, you're out. I, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And that's it's really not what David was saying because uh, those words actually are tied more to his kingship, like his, his role. And he was asking God, hey, don't take away this role that you've given me. Don't take away my throne. And then he says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then I think again, as, as believers, we read that and we go, is he worried that God was gonna take the Holy Spirit from me? Should I be worried that God's gonna take the Holy Spirit from me? And I would tell you that, that it's pretty clear in Scripture that when Jesus came and, and died and, and rose and, and he gave the Holy Spirit to all who trust in him, that that was something that happens once and for good. The New Testament is very clear that, that when we receive the Holy Spirit at the point we trust in Jesus, that we can't lose that. In fact, the, the, the Scripture uses the term sealed. It's a permanent idea that we don't have to worry that the, the Holy Spirit's ever going to leave us but in the Old Testament, it worked a little bit differently. God's Holy Spirit would, would indwell someone, but it, but it may leave again. And it was something that God chose to do as he wanted to use somebody. And so I think it's maybe more helpful to think of this as David saying, hey, God, don't stop using me. Don't, don't, don't stop using me for your purposes. 
So we don't have to worry about those things from God. We don't have to worry that he's going to cut off his relationship from us. We don't have to worry that he's going to remove his Holy Spirit from us. But we understand that David is, is still calling out to God, hey, don't, don't, don't stop using me for your purposes. But we find David here dealing with these disastrous consequences of his own sin. And, and I think we recognize this. We, we, we probably identify with it at some level. We've, we've probably all been there. And, and we, we go, yeah, I'd understand if David just, just resigned to his own sin and, and maybe just, just buried himself at the bottom of that pit. Just in his shame was like, you know what? I am, I am beyond repair, right? Because oftentimes what happens is we get caught in what you might call the, the shame cycle, right? It's this cycle that, that, that works like this. We sin, and then in our sin, we, we, we go, wow, I can't believe I did that. Like, I cannot believe that, that I committed whatever this sin might be. And so then we feel shame. And in our shame, we start to believe some lies. And, and the lies are often something like, hey, you're, you're beyond forgiveness. <laughs> like, this one was really bad. Or, or how, how could you do this again? Or if anybody knew this about you, they wouldn't love you. And we start to hear these lies. And in our shame, we start to believe them. And we think, yeah, that, that must be true. Like, I'm I am beyond forgiveness. And so because of our shame then, now we isolate because we don't believe anybody would love us. We, we don't even know if God would love us anymore, so we isolate. And in our isolation, now we're alone and we don't have anyone to lean on. And in our isolation, now we're vulnerable to that temptation and we're sitting there alone and we're feeling bad and we look out for something to make us feel better and the only thing left there is that sin. And we go, I'll just, I'll just go back to that. And so we go back to our sin and it perpetuates that cycle that then starts all over again. And I think we've all been in a shame cycle at some point and I think it would, it would make perfect sense for us to look at David's situation and be like, yeah, that's exactly where David's gonna go. He's gonna go right back into that cycle and just keep going deeper and deeper in his shame. I get it, it would make sense. But there's a difference between shame and guilt because shame is something that, that feeds those lies to us. It tells us that, hey, this is who you are. This is, a, this is a matter of your identity. You are what you've done. You're the sum of your sin. And so shame causes us to hide in the darkness. But guilt, I think guilt is a, is a correct understanding that we've done something we shouldn't have done, but, but that we can repent, right? That we can come out of that. And so where, where shame leads us into darkness, I think guilt can lead us to repentance and into the light. And so we see David, David cried out to God and asked for forgiveness. But, but the way that he did it isn't, isn't the way that I think sometimes we, we tend to do this. Like David could have gone, hey God, I know I messed up. I know that was bad. But can we talk about some of the good things I've done, right? Can we, can we go back and like highlight some of those? I've had some good moments, right? And we start to try and point to those and go, maybe those good things outweigh the bad. Or, or you know what, God? Hey, tell you what, we, if, if we can have uh, an agreement here, We'll do this conditional forgiveness. You forgive me, and I promise I won't, I won't do something like this again, right? I, I, I won't mess up this bad again if you'll let me out of this one. David doesn't do those things. Instead, what David does here is he points to God's character. And he says, God, you're, you have this everlasting love, this steadfast love for me that's unchanging. It's unchanging even when I sin. And so I, I'm gonna to point to that. God, you, you're, you're rich in mercy. You have abundant mercy. And so I'm gonna call out to that too. And so I think when we think about what, it, what would it look like to walk by sight 
in that moment. It's a choice that we often make, right? To look at the sin, look at ourselves and go, wow, that's bad. I can't believe I did that. You know what? This, this is beyond forgiveness. I think that's walking by sight. But to walk by faith, to walk by faith is what David did here. To walk by faith means we, we turn to the Lord. We don't look at ourselves, our circumstance. We don't, we don't even look necessarily at our sin in that moment. Instead, we look to God and we look to his character. We look to his grace and his mercy. So what we see David do here is David trusted God's mercy and grace. Even in the midst of his own sin and destruction, that's what he did. And so we've looked at all of these, these figures in the Old Testament and their, their moments of faith as an example. We could, we could learn a lot from all of them. We could learn a lot from David. But I think for us today, what we're gonna look at is first that from David's example, we see that we can trust in God's provision because of what he's already done. And so I'd ask you, where in your life do you see circumstances that feel too difficult to overcome? Where do you see challenges, things that you look at and you go, I'll never get through this. I, I see no way out of this. That if I am living by sight and I'm just looking at those circumstances, I'm like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't know how to get through this. Where do you find yourself in those circumstances? And, and we recognize as Christians, like just because we become Christians, it doesn't mean that we don't face hard times anymore. Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, you're gonna face challenges. But as Christians, we believe that we have somebody who will get us through with peace. Somebody, somebody who will make sense of our pain. And so maybe you're not in that place right now. Maybe that's not the season you're in. Maybe, in fact, you're in a season of sort of prosperity right now, that things are, things are going pretty well. You're, you're seeing God work in some ways and, and bring about some things that are really good in your life. And so if that's true, then I would say, how can you memorialize those things? How can you commemorate right now God's faithfulness in your life? How, how can you point back to these things later? How can you do something that'll allow you, when you do come to those moments, come to those storms, you don't focus on what's in front of you. You don't focus on those storms. You can look back and you can see what God's done. And you can remember, God, you've, you've, you've gotten me through some things before and you'll get me through this. God, you've provided before you'll provide again. I think something else we see in David's life is that we can trust in God's plan because his ways are better than our ways. And, and, and so I would ask you, where in your life do you feel tempted to take matters into your own hands? Where do you feel tempted to, to, to set your own plan in motion? Maybe there's something that you feel you're owed and you think, I'm gonna take that for myself. I deserve that. Maybe you've been wronged by someone and you feel like, you know what? I, I'm gonna set things right. I'm gonna take justice into my own hands. I think one question that we can often ask ourselves is this, where does my desire conflict with God's revealed will? Where am I pulling in a different direction from God? Because in, God's, in, in, in the scriptures, God reveals his will to us. He tells us a lot of things about what he desires for us, what he desires from us, where he doesn't want us to go. He tells us a lot about his will for us. And we can see that, and then we can measure our will versus his and see, am I going in a different direction? And in this area of my life, is there something that I'm trying to do, trying to take, that's out, out of step with God's will for me? And so we look for those places in our lives so that we can, we can lay those at his feet. And so, so then the question is, what would it look like to trust him 
and in his plan for you? What would it look like to realize, you know what, God, what you've got for me, what you've planned for me is better than what I could plan for myself. And it's it's not an indictment on making plans. It's not to say, hey, don't make any plans. But rather, when you make those plans, it's to hold them with an open hand, not a closed fist. And how can I say, God, this is what I want, but, but I recognize your ways are better than mine. I think another, another helpful question, another way that we can make sure that we're doing this is to say, where are those boundaries of Scripture? What does Scripture specifically tell me? Hey, don't go there. That's not good for you. I don't want you to do those things. Where does God clearly put some things out of bounds? Hey, don't, don't do these things. And then what's the call to discipleship? If there's places that God doesn't want us to go, things God doesn't want us to do, what are the things that he does want for us? Where does he send us? That in his call to discipleship, where does he send me? And I look at those things. And then, and then I look at the desires of my heart. And I go, okay, God, what have you put in my heart? What, what things, what passions have you given me? And how do those passions align with the call that you've given me? How do those passions keep me in bounds? Where do the, all those things play in harmony? I think that's where we can go. That's where we can lean in and trust God and live by faith. And then finally, David shows us that we can trust in God's grace because it never runs out. Because God's grace never runs out. And so I would ask, in what ways and in what situations, where in your life are you feeling some shame? Maybe immense shame. Maybe you feel like, I... I have done this thing or I've, I've, I've stayed in this place and I, and I just, I don't think God will forgive me for this. Or, or worse, maybe in, in terms of, of how it feels in the immediate is that people don't love me. It feels like, man, if, if, if even people won't love me, then what chance do I have? Maybe you're feeling that way. And if you are, I would ask, what would it look like to rest in God's grace and forgiveness? What would it look like to come out of the darkness and out into the light, some confession, coming before the Lord, to trust that that he does have grace to forgive us. Because if Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect sinless life, and then he went to the cross, and he, he took our sin on his shoulders and he exchanged our sin for his righteousness, gave that to us, said, here, you can have my righteousness and I'll pay the penalty you couldn't pay. I'll die the death you couldn't die. And then he rose three days later from the grave to conquer death and show that he can give us eternal life. If he did those things, then he did it for all of our sin. Every one of them. Past, present, and future. Jesus didn't just die for your little sins. He didn't just die for the sins that everybody does. He died for every single one of your sins. So we can trust him with that. And we can look to his abundant mercy his unending grace, and we can lean into that. We go back to the beginning of our our Hebrews chapter 11, and we see in verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith empowers us to trust in God's reputation, in his timing, and in his grace. Faith empowers us to, in a moment where all we can see is the snow in front of us and and, and we can't make sense of what is there, faith is what allows us to drive down the mountain. 
It's what allows us to remember, God, you've, you've taken care of me before. You'll take care of me again. And I, I can't make sense of my circumstances. I can't see a way forward, but I know you've got a way. I know your ways are better than my ways. And I know you've got the grace that I need to keep going. That's what faith does. Our next series will be a look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're gonna see that, that Jesus, he calls his people to live out their faith. He causes people to live as citizens in his kingdom. But what we recognize is, is we can't live out our faith until we, we embrace our faith. We, we can't obey God until we trust him. Faith always precedes obedience. It's impossible to please God without faith. And so then we, we go back and we look at these examples. So let's look at these, these characters from, from Hebrews chapter 11, these heroes of the faith, not because they lived better lives than us, not because there's something inherently good in them that we lack, but because in some of the most significant and pivotal moments in their lives, they chose to trust God and to live by faith and not by sight. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.